0: Turn with me in your Bibles to uh, John uh, chapter 12. Our scripture reading this morning is going to be John uh, chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you will find John chapter 12 on page 899. If you're regular here, you know that for the past several weeks we have been studying Luke's account of Jesus' Olivet Discourse, the last public teaching of Jesus' ministry before his betrayal and crucifixion. And Lord willing, we will return to that study in a few weeks. But for the next three Sundays, we will be in the Gospel of John. This morning, our focus will be on John's account of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday. Next Sunday, Easter Sunday, as we celebrate together our Lord's resurrection, our focus will be on John's account of that resurrection, and of his subsequent uh, appearing to his disciples. And then the week after Easter, uh, we will look at John 21, and Jesus' renewed call to Peter to feed his sheep. Those three Sundays in John will be followed by Sam's installation service as our assistant pastor. He will be installed on uh, April 15th. Uh, My dad will actually be coming to preach that service, and so I look forward to that. Uh, And then April 22nd, we will have Sam preach his first sermon as our installed pastor, uh, and I look forward to that as well. And so after all of that... Uh, we will get back to Luke's gospel. So I didn't want you to think that I was just cutting off Luke's because we were at a difficult section. Uh, We we are going to get back to it, but it is going to be a few weeks before uh, we get there. But with that said, this morning, our focus is in John 12, in Jesus riding into Jerusalem, fulfillment of the prophecy that you heard Larry read this morning. So let us read the text together. John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. This is... he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. That is the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask for his blessing upon the preaching of his word here this morning. Father God, we do come before you humbly this morning, asking that you would open our eyes to see Jesus. Jesus that you would open our minds to understand who he is and who he is for us, and that you would open our hearts to receive him and to rest upon him for our salvation, even as he is offered to us in the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure you've seen the bumper stickers or or maybe even the billboards or in this day and age even the, the memes proclaiming that Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. Of course, the problem with all such presentations of the gospel is that they rarely, if ever, clarify the question that is being addressed. The answer to what? Knowing the question is important. This week, I read an article about eight Questions that are frequently missed on the math portion of the SAT and in each case the the question was missed not because the math was particularly difficult or or because there was some obscure formula that had to be remembered but rather these these questions are, are missed again and again and again because students again and again and again fail to read the question correctly Having misunderstood the question, they necessarily misunderstand the answer. I think something similar can happen on Palm Sunday. On Palm Sunday, we know that Jesus is the answer. He arrives in Jerusalem as the answer. But what's the question? What is the question that Jesus comes to be the answer to? And that is what I hope we will see this morning. And I want us to get there in in two steps. First, by looking at the crowd's expectation, and then at Jesus' own proclamation. So let's begin with the crowd's expectation. We see what the crowd is expecting in, in a number of the details that John gives us. The first thing is just simply the crowd's size. John says, the next day the crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, and so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. And so notice, the, the crowd hasn't gathered here to see Jesus, at least not at first. That's not why they're here. They are here for the feast. They have, they have gathered in Jerusalem for the, for the feast. This was a, a dream, a lifetime dream of many Jews to, to one day celebrate the feast in Jerusalem. And so every year, many pilgrims came to Jerusalem. There's a large crowd around, but notice what? When this crowd hears that Jesus is coming, they go out to see him. When they hear that that Jesus is on his way, they, they move to greet him. And that Jesus' presence can move such a large crowd tells us that they believe he is someone of importance, that his presence is significant. Think about it. When I arrive at the airport or when you arrive at the airport, you're lucky if your family comes to greet you, right? You're lucky if they don't make you drive home on your own. But when the president of the United States or when some famous actor or when a beloved musician arrives... Somehow word spreads like wildfire and everyone gathers to greet them. So that the crowd moves to to greet Jesus as he's riding into Jerusalem, tells us that they thought he was somebody. But who exactly did they think that he was? Well, we have a clue in the second detail that I want you to notice. The the second thing I want you to see here is the crowd's use of palm branches. This is, after all, palm branches. Sunday. We, we see it in what John writes. When the, the crowds went out to greet him, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. Now the exact origin of this, the, the, the exact significance of this, why they did this, that, that's that's debated. No one really knows for sure how it came to be that, that the Jews would, would wave palm branches in the air. But at the very least, it is an expression of joy and, and excitement. It is, it is something like, if you've ever seen an NFL football game, it's, it's something like the fans in Pitt, Pittsburgh waving their terrible towels above their heads. Or it's, it's something like the, the fans in Atlanta doing the, the tomahawk chalk. It is an action that has symbolic significance. It doesn't make any sense if you don't know what's going on. But if you've seen it before, if you're in the know, then you know exactly what's going on. You know the the joy and the excitement that is being expressed. And this waving of palm branches was at least that. But I think it was actually even more than just that. It It was more than a mere expression of excitement. It was something like rolling out the red carpet. We know what that means. When we roll out the red carpet, we are, we are greeting someone of, of importance. And for the first century Jews, it wasn't just someone of importance, but it was someone of royal importance. This is a, a ruler. This is a king. This is someone who comes with authority to rule in righteousness. That's what the, the palm branches represented. And this is what they used to greet Jesus. And not only do they express it by the palm branches, but they express it by the words of That they use again notice what John says he says that as the crowds went out to meet Jesus they were crying out Hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord even the King of Israel Hosanna means something like save it's a it's an exclamation it could be mean that it's a that it's a request save us now or it could could mean that they are simply acknowledging that we are now saved he's here Given the quote from Psalm 18, I think it's probably the former. It's probably a cry for salvation. Save us. Save us. But, but either way, however you, you read it, it's clear that the crowds think that Jesus is the Savior. He is the one who has come to, to bring salvation to his people. He is the one who has come to deliver them out of bondage and oppression. We see this in their quote of Psalm 118, the psalm that we use for our call to worship This morning they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When you you read that psalm together, when you read the whole thing, you, you see clearly that the one who comes in the name of the Lord is the one who comes to bring the salvation that God has promised to his people. He is the Savior provided by the Lord God Almighty. And this is who the people think Jesus is. Jesus is the one who comes to bring God's salvation, to bring God's rescue, God's deliverance to his people. And this means that he must be David's greater son. For it was the, the stump that would, it was the rod that would come up from the stump of Jesse. It was David's son who was going to finally bring this salvation to God's people. This is why they say at the end, even the king of Israel, if the Savior is here, if the one who comes in the name of the Lord is here, then he must be the king. He must be David's greater son, for it is through the king, it is through David's son that the kingdom will be returned to Israel. And this is what the people think they see in Jesus. This is who they think he is on that first Palm Sunday. And the question is, why? Why do the people think this? Why do they think that Jesus is the Savior? What's well, the final detail I want you to notice about the crowd? Notice the crowd's rationale. Look what John says in verses 17 and 18. He says, The crowd that had been with Jesus when he called Lazarus out of the tomb continued to bear witness. They, they were telling the story, and that's no surprise. If you were there, you would tell the story too. This is the kind of story that gets told. This this is good news. Did you see what Jesus did? He, he called Lazarus out of the tomb. This was, this was not resuscitating him on the table. This was four days later when the, the stench was great. They called Jesus, He called Lazarus out of the tomb. It's the story that gets told. And the crowds had heard it and they had come to believe it. And so we're told in verse 18 the reason why the crowd went out to meet him that day is that they had heard that he had done this sign. And so John ties Jesus' triumphal entry and the, the, the reaction of the crowd directly to him calling Lazarus out of the tomb. And we've, we've seen it actually in the, the text that comes first. Notice the, the, the Jewish leaders were mad at Jesus because of this. So many people were, were flocking to see more of Jesus and to learn more about him because of this sign that the, the Jewish leaders wanted to kill not only Jesus but Lazarus. They wanted to, to get rid of the evidence. It's what they were, it was what was drawing the crowd. Now, why? Well, it seems obvious, doesn't it? If this man can call people out of the, the tomb, then, then he has power. They, they, they understood that this was, the, this was the final evidence that they needed. This is what convinced them. No doubt Jesus' reputation had been growing for some time. This isn't the first sign that, that Jesus had, had done. They had, they had heard about the healings. They had heard about the, the miracles. But finally, it was Lazarus that that allowed them to put away their cynicism, that allowed them to to overcome their skepticism, that allowed them to finally believe that Jesus could be the one. There had been so many pretenders before, but never one like this. Now, don't misunderstand. They, they, They didn't know all that you know today about who Jesus is. The crowds didn't believe that Jesus was, was God and incarnate. It probably wasn't even on their radar. But if Jesus could call Lazarus out of the tomb, it meant that he was one highly favored by God. It meant that he was one like the prophets of old, like Elijah or Elisha, who had both raised people from the dead. They had done that during the, the time of the kings. And if Jesus could do the same thing, then he must be like Them And remember what they did to the armies of kings. Remember the story when the the king came after Elijah? And the king was going to arrest Elijah because he was troubling Israel? Fire from heaven fell upon the soldiers who threatened Elijah's life. We see something similar with Elisha. We looked at the story just a, a few weeks ago. The king of Syria came against Elisha in the city of Dothan and said, I'm going to get this guy because he keeps, he keeps telling my secret plans to the king of Israel. And But when, when they came around the city of Dothan, what happened? Elijah prayed that his servant's eyes would be opened wide so that he could see that those who are with us are greater than those who are with him. And that day, the armies of the Lord stood between Elisha and the enemies of God's. People. And so they knew that if he can call someone out of the grave like Elijah or Elisha, then he, just maybe, he can be the one who can restore the kingdom to Israel. That's what they were hoping for. That's what they were waiting for. That's what they were excited about. But of course, it brings us to our next question For what type of savior were they hoping exactly? What exactly was the the salvation that they had in mind? You've probably heard it said before that they were looking for a political savior. That's what they were waiting for. That's what they were were hoping for. And I think that's probably true. They were looking for someone to rescue them from Roman domination. They were looking for someone to to restore the kingdom to the king of Israel. They no longer wanted to be under the the rule of the, the Gentiles. They all again wanted to be a king like they were in the glory days of David and and Solomon. I think that's exactly what the people had in mind. That's exactly what the the people were were hoping for. And it's easy for us, you know, this side of Easter, to give them a hard time. Oh, you know, those poor Jews, they just didn't get it. They just didn't see who, who Jesus truly was. But I wonder, how much are we like them even today? what type of savior are you looking for what kind of salvation does your heart long for this morning some of you are experiencing financial trouble you have debts that you cannot pay bills that are piling up you are in financial trouble and you're looking for a savior others of you have health issues you're dealing with, with health issues yourself. Your, your body just doesn't work like it used to. You're, you're dealing with a, a disease. Or maybe someone you love is dealing with some sickness. And you're looking for your health to be restored. You're looking for the health of the one whom you love to be restored. Others find yourselves in broken relationships. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe your, your marriage is, is stressed. Maybe it's just grown cold, maybe it seems broken beyond repair. Others of you have children who are straying from the gospel, who are openly rebelling against your instruction. Others of you just don't have relationships at all, you're just lonely. And you wonder how, how God has allowed you to end up in this place. Maybe it's not your relationships. Maybe it's your dreams. Maybe your, your dreams have, have crashed and burned. You, you have lost your sense of purpose, that position that you so longed for. You didn't get and Now you don't know what you're going to do to find meaning in your life. You're overcome by this sense of vanity. Are these not the issues? Are these not the, the problems from which we want God to save us? We want God to heal. We want God to to prosper. We want God to to place us in in communities of of close and and fulfilling relationships. We want God to give us that sense of of purpose. This is the salvation our hearts long for. And I hope that you can see that that in this we are not too different from the crowds. We're not too different from the crowds who, who hailed Jesus as King on that first Palm Sunday. We can give them a hard time, but, but we're a lot like them. And because we are like them, because we are like the crowds in this way, I want you to hear me say that we are open to the same disappointment. We are open to the same disillusionment. I know the crowd celebrating Jesus on Palm Sunday is not exactly the same crowd. There's not a one-to-one correspondence between the, the crowd on Palm Sunday and the, and the crowd that a week later is going to be crying for his crucifixion. And I know that it's in vogue these days to warn pastors not to make too much about the correspondence, but forget all that. If you read that blog article this week, just, just sort of set that aside because while it's not a one-to-one correspondence, this is the crowd that came to Jerusalem for the feast. This is the same group of people. Maybe not one-to-one correspondence, but but these are the people, many of these will be among the crowd, crying out for Jesus' crucifixion by the end of the week. And so let me ask you, what could cause them to turn so quickly? What could cause them to, to flip on Jesus within the course of a week? To put it simply, He failed to deliver. He failed to to give them what they want. He failed to bring the salvation they were looking for. Think about it. What's the first thing Jesus does when he arrives in Jerusalem? He doesn't address the Romans. He goes into the temple. And he he throws out those who are buying and selling. He, He picks a fight with the wrong guy. He he doesn't go to the Romans. He picks a fight with the Jewish leaders. And for the rest of the week, he spends uh, day after day sparring with them. It's what we've seen in our study of Luke's gospel. Conflict after conflict. Not with the Romans. Not with the oppressors. But with the leaders of the Jews. This wasn't what the the crowds were were looking for. And so when he was arrested and when he was betrayed and, and when he was sentenced to die... It only seemed to confirm their disappointment. It only seemed to confirm that he wasn't who they thought he was. They thought he was the Savior, but he turned out to be just another pretender. They were disappointed. They They were mad, and so they thought, go ahead and crucify him. What do we care? Clearly, he's not who we hoped he was. Such was their disillusionment. And you will feel that same disappointment. You will feel that same disillusionment if you have the wrong idea about the salvation that Jesus brings to his people. If you have the wrong idea about the salvation that is being offered to you in the gospel, you too will feel their disappointment. Maybe you already feel it. Maybe you feel it even this morning. Maybe as you sit there this morning, you're thinking that Jesus hasn't proven to be the the Savior you hoped for. Your financial problems haven't been resolved. Your your health issues have not been healed. Your your relationships are are still broken. He didn't restore your marriage. He didn't fix your kid. You didn't get the position that you had your heart set on. You're disappointed. Maybe... Maybe you're even mad. You may not be calling out for his crucifixion, but but you're wondering if it's time to give up and walk away and look for another Savior. That's where you are this morning. It is vital that you hear what Jesus says about himself. Let's look again at how Jesus teaches the people about the Savior he came to be. Look with me at verse 14. John writes, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Now we know from the other Gospels that that Jesus had prepared this ahead of time. But the way that John says it, he he makes it clear that that Jesus intends to instruct the crowds. He he does this for their benefit. When they come to him crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus finds a donkey and sits on it. He doesn't teach them with words, but with this prophetic Action. And it's an image that we're familiar with. It's an image we, we've seen before. After all, we celebrate Palm Sunday every year. We, we, we've seen this before. We, we know about Jesus riding into Jerusalem on, a, on the foal of a of a donkey. We, we know about the crowds waving their, their palm branches. It's a familiar image. But let's admit its significance is not immediately obvious. It isn't it encouraging to know it wasn't immediately obvious to his disciples either? Look what. Look what John says. He says, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So if you're sitting there and you're wondering, what is the significance of Jesus riding on a donkey? You're in good company. The, The disciples are right there with you. They don't know exactly what is going on. But with the benefit of looking back, John can tell us in verse 15, He tells us, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Why? To fulfill the words of the prophet, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's corpse. Now John doesn't get the words exactly right, and that's actually kind of an encouragement to me. I struggle to memorize verses word for word. I, I always have. I never got a hundred on my memory verses when I was in elementary school, because I'd always miss a word here or transpose a word there, and, and John doesn't get it exactly right. But there's no doubt that he is quoting from Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine. He he's quoting the, the prophet Zechariah. The the passage that, that Larry read earlier. And what we see In Zechariah is this, the prophet says to the people, the the people who have been under the judgment of God, he says to them, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. This is it. This is what what Jesus is is fulfilling. He he comes to them as the one who who fulfills these words. And so Jesus is affirming. He is acknowledging the the truth of the crowd's expectation. He is the long-awaited Savior. But notice, notice the rest of verse 9 in Zechariah. He says, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The king comes. He comes to bring salvation to his people, but he comes humbly. He comes lowly. He he comes riding (coughs) upon a donkey. This is a strange image. It's something like the president of the United States riding around in an old beat-up pickup truck rather than his shiny new Escalade. It's not what we expect. We expect a king to come not on a donkey, but on a mighty stallion, on a horse dressed for war. And Zechariah acknowledges the the strangeness of this because in in verse 10 he goes on to say that he will cut off what? He will cut off the chariots and the war horses from Israel. He will will end war. This is military language. This is a king who is coming to to defeat his enemies, not to, to placate them not to have some sort of armistice. He is coming to defeat them. He is coming to overrule them. He is coming to to do this that he might bring everlasting peace to his people. But how does a king riding on a donkey achieve such a victory? It's a strange juxtaposition. It's a a strange combination of of images. A, A victorious king riding on this humble animal. But it prepares us for the strangeness of Jesus' work. It prepares us for the strange way in which Jesus is going to defeat His and our enemies. After all, we know the story. We know how it's going to unfold. We, We know what is going to happen. Within the week, Jesus will be betrayed by one of His own. He will be arrested by the authorities. He will be beaten. He will be unjustly condemned. And He will be crucified and buried. By the end of the week, he will be dead. And let's be honest, that's that's not what we expect victory to look like. That doesn't look like the the victory of a powerful king. Kind of like the circumstances of your life don't always look like salvation. But remember what Paul would later say about Jesus. Remember what he would say about his crucifixion in Colossians chapter 2. Paul writes these words. He says, Christ has disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he has put them to open shame by triumphing over them in it, or or him. There's some debate about how exactly to, to translate that last word. If it's it, then it's referring to the cross. If it's him, then it's referring to Jesus crucified upon the cross. Either way, what is Paul saying? That Jesus has disarmed our enemies. He has disarmed the rulers and authorities. He has disarmed them by dying upon the cross. Jesus has achieved his victory through the cross. But how does that work? How how does being killed by your enemies give you victory over them? Well, Think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. The sting of death is sin. It's because of sin that death is the beginning of our eternal condemnation. It's because of sin that, that death leads us into eternal punishment And why does sin have this power to condemn? Why does does sin have this power to to bring us into such misery forever? Paul tells us the power of sin is the law. Sin has this power because God has said through His Word that the consequence of rebellion against Him is eternal death. And the day you eat of it, you will die. And so sin and, and death have power because of God's law. But God, through Jesus Christ, has disarmed our enemies. He has taken away these weapons, the, the weapons that, that our enemies use to subdue us, the enemies, the weapons that our enemies use to, to harm us. Sin and death have been taken away from our enemies. How? Because Jesus has died in our place upon the cross. He has defeated sin and death once for all. In the cross, Jesus has, has taken away the sting of death because he has broken the power of the law to condemn. Because we no longer stand under the law, but we now stand in him justified. And because we have been justified in him, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's what we sing in that glorious hymn by John Newton. Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. Why? For he has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He goes on to say, let us wonder grace and justice. Join and point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles. And asks no more. For he has washed us with his blood. And by his blood, he has brought us nigh to God. Through the cross, sin and death have been overcome. The, the weapons of our enemies have been taken away. They have been disarmed. This is what Palm Sunday is all about. This is what a Savior riding on a donkey can accomplish for his people. He came not to kill, but to be killed. Not to judge, but to be judged. As he himself says, he came not to serve, or not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This isn't the salvation that many people hope for. It's not the salvation that the crowds were hoping for. It certainly isn't the salvation that the Pharisees were hoping for. We see that in verse 19, but this is the salvation we need. God could give you health and wealth and happiness now. He could could fulfill all your dreams today. And we think He's cruel for not doing it. But the truth is, if, if Jesus gave you all these things now, only for this life, it would be a cruel diversion from your true need. God is not willing to give His children the fleeting pleasures and and treasures of this age, those pleasures and treasures where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. He is not willing to, to placate us with those things if it means blinding our eyes to our true need. Why? Because He has something far better. He has for His children an indestructible, undefiled, unfading inheritance in the coming kingdom of God. And apart from Christ, you are disqualified from that inheritance. Apart from Him, you have no part in the coming kingdom. For what does the psalmist say? Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can dwell in His holy city? Only He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And that's not you. That's not me. We are disqualified. But that's why Jesus came. Jesus came not to give us our best life now. Not to give us the salvation we think we want and need. He came to deal with our sin once and for all by the sacrifice of his own life that we might have new life in the coming kingdom for all eternity. Jesus will not save you from all your troubles in this life. If that's what you expect, if that's what you hope for, if that's what you desire, you will be disappointed. And you will be disillusioned. Even as the crowds were disillusioned on that first Palm Sunday. But, because Jesus has disarmed our true enemies, because He has conquered sin and death, we can know that whatever troubles He calls us to pass through in this life, They will be but slight and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory that He has prepared and is preparing for us. Even as the prophet Isaiah says, when you pass through the waters, they will not overwhelm you. When you pass through the fires, you will not be burned because He has given Himself for you and He will not fail to bring you into you remember the story of the Exodus? After God brought his people up out of Egypt with, with such mighty power, they were almost immediately disappointed with his salvation. After all, they were in the wilderness. They were in the wilderness without food. They were in the wilderness without water. This was not the salvation that they hoped for, and they let God know it. They began to, to grumble, they began to complain. And in response to their grumbling, what did God do? God said to Moses, okay, you can can have the promised land. You can go into this land flowing with milk and honey, but I'm not going with you. No doubt a few thought that was a great idea. A few probably thought that was exactly what they wanted. Let's get the land and and not have to worry about this persnickety God. But Moses knew better. Moses knew it was a disastrous word. For it is better to be in the wilderness with God than in the promised land without Him. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you know it to be true this morning? I hope you do, because that is the lesson of Palm Sunday. Jesus is our King, but He ascends to His throne by descending to the grave. And He calls you To follow Him. Will you? Will you follow Him to the grave? If you will. If you will die with Him, then He promises that you will live with Him as well. If you will die with Him, if you will rest upon Him alone for your salvation, then He will give you true life indeed. Life abundant. Life eternal. And because Jesus calls us to lay aside the fleeting pleasures of this age so that we might possess forever the eternal joys of His kingdom, because He calls us to ride upon a donkey into true salvation, even as He rode upon a donkey into Jerusalem, that is one reason we call this good news. Now, do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice in Your goodness. We rejoice in the salvation that You have given us. Forgive us, Father, for desiring something else. Forgive us for for believing that we know better. And grant to us true faith. Faith not only in Your ability to provide salvation, but, Father, faith in Your wisdom to provide us exactly the salvation that we need. Let these truths rule in our hearts and bring forth fruit in our lives to the praise of Your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.